Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Andy Campbell, who is a senior editor at the Huffington Post and the author of the forthcoming book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I love your show. I guess just to begin with, uh, you're on the extremism disinfo beat at HuffPo. How did you come to be there? I was a national crime reporter. And so prior to 2015 or 2016 or so, I was covering a lot of mass shootings, which are still a huge problem in America. But I slowly moved into the extremism beat as we started covering Trump rallies, which came uh, along with a lot of violence. We started seeing more and more violent rallies as we joined these Trump rallies. And, you know, we also started seeing a lot of really weird new characters that we hadn't seen before at political rallies, among them the Proud Boys. But, But really the whole smattering of these groups, people in football pads holding batons and and other weaponry and wearing baseball helmets and draped in flags covered in memes. Uh, One was the, uh, I I remember specifically in an early uh, uh, Trump rally, a kid wearing a baseball helmet and a flag that was made to look like a, a German Nazi war flag. But instead of being red, it was green, and instead of a swastika, it had it had a, a Pepe the Frog, a Kek meme. And I learned that this was the a flag for the Republic of Kekistan, a 4chan-based, meme-based hate group, right? And so taken together, all of these groups kind of resembled a really bad Mad Max sequel. And we knew that we had something sort of new and scary on our hands, so we, we followed along. And the, the, the Proud Boys specifically... I remember stood out to us because unlike the other guys who were, you know, wouldn't give their names when you talk to them as a member of the press, they were, the Proud Boys were willing to give their names. They loved to talk to the press. They were proud of what they were doing and they had, you know, violence in the rule set. And so we started following them harder than the other groups. And it turned out that that was uh, the right thing to do because they continued on a sort of violent, misogynistic and bigoted spree throughout America and now throughout the world. Uh, I think we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but they do love giving names, don't they? Oh my God, they love giving names and they love giving names of each other. Uh, They tell on each other all the time. (laughs) With with these Proud Boys that you're looking at, what were they proud of? It's interesting because in in the beginning, part of the thing that made them peculiar to us is that they didn't seem to have any sort of immediate ideology other than they wanted to fight the leftist counter-protesters 
that would inevitably show up to try and thwart them because they were a threat to the communities that they that they entered. And moving forward, as we started listening to the podcast where they were assembled, which is Gavin McGinnis's podcast. I don't know if your your listeners know Gavin McGinnis well, but he's the co-founder of of Vice Media. And he's also the founder of the Proud Boys. He threw his show, and we didn't really know this at the time because we weren't sitting around listening to Gavin McGinnis all, every day, but he had been building them and building their ideology to be very, very nationalistic, very misogynistic, and violent against anyone and anyone who didn't, you know, look or sound like them. And and while they, you know, weren't outwardly racist in the sense that they didn't walk around saying I'm racist as a rule, you know, many of them are because the majority of them are are white and hate immigrants, which in America uh, on the right wing, immigrants just really means brown people. So this was a sort of ideological stance that was built out over the course of his show. And what that looked like in the street was <laughs> them showing up, uh, waiting for the counter-protest movement that would show up, which in my experience equaled just local residents. And some of them might be wearing uh, black masks for anonymity or, or whatever. Wasn't necessarily Antifa, right? It was it was just local counter-protesters. And the Proud Boys would fight anybody who showed up. And the concerning thing about that beyond just these violent brawls happening at political rallies is that the Proud Boys were accepted immediately by regular right-wing people as a sort of necessary defense force against the the anonymously evil Antifa that that Trump and company sort of touted as the the, the rights boogeyman. Andy, the Antifas were uh, generally, I guess, received some negative betrayals in the media. As far as the Proud Boys are concerned, as well as being oppositional. What was the relationship between boys and the police who were given the task of, I guess, uh, controlling these sorts of public uh, demonstrations? Through our coverage of Proud Boys rallies, which we went to a lot, and, and in fact, our coverage of the Proud Boys led us to be there during um, Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017, uh, but during all of these rallies, and I, I mean almost every single rally, and I only say almost because I can't you know, think of a time when the police ever sort of turned their munitions on the Proud Boys. But almost every single rally, the police took a position uh, with the Proud Boys at their back and with their munitions pointed at the locals coming to protest them. The Proud Boys make it a point to adopt pro-police messaging and and imagery specifically for uh, the ability to have the defense of the police. And so the police would often, especially in Portland, Oregon, we went to a lot of rallies in Portland, Oregon on the West Coast, and the police would escort them throughout town. Um, They would, again, stand with them at their backs, shoot uh, all kinds of concussion grenades and and tear gas into the crowds against them. And the Proud Boys would stand at their backs cheering them on. And so there was never a time when it didn't seem like it was the police and the Proud Boys hand in hand. And, And of course, as we found out when we started looking into this and going, hey, this isn't right, there are a lot of Proud Boys who are police and a lot of police who are Proud Boys. And so We've found that not only is there sort of a tacit endorsement uh, of police on the Proud Boys in the field, but there's an explicit one too. When you have police officers who have joined them, there's a police officer who entered into a business with one of the top Proud Boys. It was a 
uh, protein supplements business. There were there was a Proud Boy father and son duo at January sixth who are also pol- active police officers. the The relationship is deep, and of course, as it always goes with the Proud Boys, that relationship only goes as far as the Proud Boys feel like they're getting something in return from the police. And so, come January sixth, a number of rallies beforehand, the Proud Boys got stabbed. One of them was Enrique Tario, one of their leaders. And the Proud Boys stopped feeling like they were getting the protection from the police that they had built out over the years. And so they stopped, you know, they stopped liking the police and they started calling them SS officers. And, uh, you you know, you saw anti-police rhetoric. And that, we believe, led to their their sort of violent, their violence against the police during January 6th, right? They stopped caring about the safety and ongoing relationship they had with the only guys standing between them and the congressional buildings. And so the police relationship is still there, but but certainly we saw and, and continue to see that the police are never siding with the leftist forces that come to to protest. And what's the relationship between the Proud Boys and the GOP? It's just as deep. And and I say in, in my book, which by the way, comes out October 4th and you can pre-order it now. Uh, it, I, I say in the book, you know, it, it, it takes to, to build up what the Proud Boys have become, which is a huge existential threat um, and one of the top extremist forces in America. You have to have the, the trifecta of the police, the GOP and the media, and they have secured relationships in, in all three of those. The, the, the GOP is the biggest one. And what happened there is we saw there was an event at a GOP club in Manhattan in New York in 2018, where Gavin McGinnis rolls up. He's, he was booked to reenact uh, the assassination of a Japanese socialist leader. And it was this really ridiculous stunt event that was a weird site for such a like, it's an upscale stuffy Republican club, right? For old white men. And so this was a weird stunt as it began, but it, but it also featured Kevin McGinnis, who by that point had a year of, of running a gang under his belt. And so naturally the proud boy showed up with him as his bodyguards and stood along the back of the, uh, the event, you know, sort of presiding over it. When it ended, Gavin left samurai sword in hand and sort of like waved his sword around around on the streets of Manhattan. Another site that you don't see very often because uh, swords are illegal in in New York City. The, the Proud Boys, after Gavin sort of leaves, the Proud Boys were left on a darkening Manhattan street with a number of counter demonstrators who showed up, some of which are self-described anti-fascists. And they did exactly what the Proud Boys are trained to do, which is they uh, attacked. And the video evidence shows that the the Proud Boys were the assailants the entire time. The only reason that uh, they didn't get even worse charges than they did in the end is because anti-fascists don't often work with police. So there were no victim statements because nobody came forward. But clearly on video, it showed them you know, it showed them attacking uh, these anti-fascist protesters and being the aggressors. The point of that is, is that after the fact, we saw the the Fox News and, and right-wing media came out for the Proud Boys. They defended them on Fox News. The politicians started defending them. And then we started seeing them showing up in pictures with top-level Republicans and serving as their bodyguards at different political rallies. And we were like, wait a minute, this this is sort of like this relationship is a lot deeper than we we understood. And so me and, and a number of other, you know, uh, reporters on this beat 
looked into this and sure enough, I mean, they have, they had through various channels positioned themselves to, to different GOP people as a necessary defense force against the Antifa threat, which by the way, I should note <laughs> the leftist threat in the US, uh, the one that's always touted by the right. And I'm sure that you guys have a lot of this too. The, the right likes to claim that, for example, the uh, Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 were exceedingly violent and destructive and, and proof of a leftist violence that is equal to, if not greater than that of the far right in America. Studies have shown without a doubt that not only were they were those 2020 protests exceedingly peaceful, I think it was 97.7%, there were no reports of injuries, but that when there was violence, it was often started or enhanced by the police, not the leftist protesters. The point being that the, the you know this threat that the GOP put forth wasn't real, but they used that to, the Proud Boys used that threat to sidle up next to the GOP. And so they, uh, we started seeing a lot of pictures. Um, we started seeing um, a lot of communications between different Republicans and Proud Boys. And then we realized that actually it went deeper than that. Roger Stone, one of Donald Trump's closest confidants over the years, and really a, a confidant of a lot of Republicans throughout the decades. He's been around for a long time. Counts Enrique Tarrio, one of the Proud Boys leaders, and for a while, the chair of the Proud Boys, counts him as his one of his best friends. After January 6th, a uh, documentary film crew filming Roger Stone as January 6th happened, uh, looked over at his phone and saw that Enrique Tarrio was one of the people in his mass text group called Friends of Stone. I mean, their friendship is deep. And and so through that relationship, they were able to sanitize themselves. And of course, when Trump and Trump says, you know, stand back and stand by Proud Boys at, at, at a presidential debate, and when Stone uh, calls them his friends, when people like Ann Coulter, who, if you don't know, is a sort of racist gremlin and pundit, you know, writes a blog that says, thank God for the Proud Boys, the general public on the right also sees them as something to celebrate. And that's what the Proud Boys have enjoyed because of that relationship. I mean, it's insane to me that the Proud Boys have been involved in some of the worst acts of political violence in America since Trump you know, started running, and they've always come back from them. I mean, a Proud Boy helped organize Unite the Right. The Proud Boys were at January 6th. There are all sorts of violent events that they've been involved in alongside their tour of violence throughout America. And they always come back from it, even when their top level guys are put behind bars. They always come back. And that part of that is that they have the media on their side, you know, at least the Rupert Murdoch owned media and the, you know, the GOP on their side. And they are willing to, to bounce back by way of normalization every time. So <laughs> I, I, I hope I'm not rambling too much there, but really, I mean, this is, uh, is such a deep thing that has so many, um, so many working parts at the same time, right? It does. Speaking of which, I mean, the Proud Boys have extended themselves outside of the United States. We have Proud Boys in Australia and there are Proud Boys in, in Canada and other English-speaking societies. And yet in Canada, the group has been prescribed. It was the Canadian government declared it to be a terrorist organisation. Uh, right. When Gavin McInnes tried to uh, tour Australia a couple of years ago uh, under pressure, under public pressure, uh, the Australian government denied him a visa to tour. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, there's a kind of element associated with the Proud Boys that render it, although they may have been somewhat successful in sanitising their image, there's a kind of, uh, I guess, edginess or a kind of an element of LARPing associated with it that seems to have quite 
broad appeal in addition to the violence. So I'm wondering, in terms of your exploration of the Proud Boys of figures like McGuinness and others, what do you make of them ideologically? They may be a vanguard on the streets for the Republicans and for various other right-wing figures, but what do you think is actually going on inside their heads and in the heads of those who are that those men who are attracted to to want to join and participate? You know, Gavin instilled in them basically their their rule set consists of committing political violence for right-wing causes. And so, you know, you have you know, for instance, one of their their uh, the ways that they rank up their the fourth degree is their highest rank, and to get that rank, you have to commit uh, what Gavin described as a significant act of violence for the cause. And he instilled in them that that cause was right wing in nature; it was nationalist in nature. And so he's you know he's saying you know fight for Western values and 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 uh, right wing grievances and anything anything that Trump and his cadre sort of place as the right-wing grievance of the day. And so sometimes sometimes that's Antifa, sometimes that's women, sometimes that's trans individuals, sometimes that's Muslims, but but the proud boys are sort of there's a there's a decentralized element to them in the sense that they have chapters all over the place and they can as long as they follow those core tenets, they can kind of work independently. I mean, they they every now and then they're disavowed, they certainly throw each other under the bus all the time, but but you know, uh, your Proud Boys in Australia, which, of which there are plenty, are allowed to throw their own events. And so as long as they're going after those tenets, as long as they are pushing for, you know, fighting uh, the right wing's grievances out in the street, they can kind of do their own thing. And, 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 and they are willing to do anything that's necessary to forward right wing grievances. This is why there were no Proud Boys in uniform on January 6th at the insurrection, because they knew that their image on that day at that specific time was repellent and could get them in trouble. And so even if it means sort of not being a proud boy that day, you know, they're willing to do what it takes to, to, to get out there and, and, and fight it out in the streets. And, and so ideologically, I think the standard proud boy just wants to get out there and, and, and fight, but he's willing to do it for any number of causes. And so the scary thing here, and, and what I always say is, while the Proud Boys' name might be repellent on a given day because yesterday they just did a big extremist event, their threat isn't necessarily that they're going to show up at one of your listeners' doorsteps and punch them. That has happened, and they do it, but but their threat is really existential in several ways, one of which is their ability to coalition build. Again, they brought together Nazis and all sorts of far-right extremists for Unite the Right. And they have you know, they are able to bring out numbers wherever they go, whether it's regular people or people that are a part of militias or other far-right groups. Uh, and, and again, their, their, you know, their other threat is their normal, normalization of violence as a response to any number of grievances. So here, you know, instead of just... MAGA rallies, they don't, you know, there are MAGA rallies happening, but not at the frequency they were and will be when Trump runs for president again. But they are, you know, showing up at all sorts of civic events now. And so the, the, it's, it, it is terrifying to me that at a, in a rally that may have once contained a bunch of signage where, you know, it's an abortion rally and you've got evangelical Christians out there outside an abortion clinic, you know, screaming that these women are going to go to to hell and all that. You now also have a cadre of proud boys whose very presence means violence, right? And and it is a threat. 
they're showing up at school board meetings. They're showing up at libraries. You know, they are, they're everywhere. And the, the, the sort of normalization of the political violence as a means of demonstration is everywhere. And so you, you really, the threat that they pose to me is, is, is that, right? That I think, and I believe that here and all over the world where it's possible for, for there to be sort of weaponry at civic events and 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 the threat of extremist violence there's going to be it's it's uh it's really really scary how demonstrations have changed i mean you guys i, I we talked about this before but but uh you know there was a, there is a marxist cultural marxism uh, event of some sort in there in australia i think it was in melbourne and uh you know a bunch of proud boys showed up uh, to that event. And it ended up being a dud. It ended up being, I think, you know, a, a handful of proud boys sort of accosting one dude in the streets. But, but these guys are ready to respond to literally anything that they can, uh, in an effort to, to bring a violent threat to, to civic events. And so that's scary to me. The proud boys in Melbourne's uh, effort at the Marxism conference definitely paled in comparison to the sex workers who <laughs> crashed it the next day. You've, you've mentioned January 6th. What was the involvement of the Proud Boys in January 6th and what was their intention going in? It's, it's, it's an interesting time to be talking about this because there is so much that has changed in the last few weeks on this. So before the last few weeks, the revelations of the last few weeks, as far as I knew it, writing while I was writing this book, as far as I was you know, able to say, you know, the Proud Boys, we knew that they saw January 6th as a last stand of sorts for Trump. Trump had just recently said at a presidential debate, Proud Boys stand back and stand by. And whether you think that he actually meant uh, that they should stand back and stand by and wait for his orders earnestly, or whether he was just saying something stupid like he always does uh, because he is unable to formulate sentences, it doesn't matter because the Proud Boys mobilized. They were ready to fight for him. And they saw January 6th, which, you know, was the day that that uh, Joe Biden was to be confirmed as president as a last stand. And we saw the Proud Boys gathering as many people as possible, fundraising tens of thousands of dollars and doing these sort of test runs, uh, these stop the steal rallies, which they were uh, accusing Biden of stealing the election uh, from Trump. They were getting ready for this big day. And so before the last few weeks, we thought that the Proud Boys' involvement on January 6th, or at least the only thing we were able to say concretely, is that after Trump gave a, a speech in which he told his followers to to march on the Capitol and take back what was rightfully theirs, we thought that that was the moment that we could say, this is when sort of the insurrection started. We had inklings that there was planning beforehand, but there was nothing we could really concretely say, especially as it pertains to the Proud Boys. About it, uh, about a hundred or so uh, Proud Boys and their allies were the leaders of a march that, that went down to the Capitol. And uh, while the Proud Boys aren't directly accused of sort of murdering the police officers, several uh, police officers and others were killed that day, but they certainly led the charge. Now, over the past few weeks, through the arrests and indictment of some top-level Proud Boys, including Enrique Tario and a man named Charles Donahoe, we know that way earlier than January 6th, as early as I think um, December 30th, 29th maybe, that Enrique, somebody, and I have plenty of theories of who this somebody is, but I don't think I should talk about it right now because we don't know for sure and I don't want to get in trouble, 
somebody put a plan, um, a, a document in front of Enrique about plans to overtake several DC buildings, including the House and Senate buildings near the Capitol. Additionally, uh, Charles Donahoe, uh, one of the chapter leaders of the Proud Boys, just uh, in the past few days, pleaded guilty to conspiracy charges and as part of his deal, agreed with prosecutors to flip on all the other Proud Boys. And so he has agreed to testify against them, something that, you know, in general is kind of a big no-no in gang culture, right? You don't uh, you don't snitch. Um, Proud Boys love to snitch, especially when it means covering their own ass. But Charles Donahoe, it's going to be really interesting. His Their court cases haven't started yet, but he's going to be sitting up there on the stand looking directly in the eyes of his... Uh, you know, colleagues on the gang and and, and uh, turning on them. And so it will be interesting to see what he says there. But he has already admitted that he knew that they were going to storm the Capitol on January 6th and that there was a plan in place. And so, wow, over the last few weeks, we we, we know that not only were the Proud Boys overrepresented there, they were certainly the, the, the top, you know, the most numerous group uh, represented there alongside their buddies, the Oath Keepers and militia. They are they were also the architects is what we're learning um at, at least in part and so you know we knew that the proud boys were capable of coalition building but you know we didn't know that they were fully on board you know and having a plan in front of them and i think that's just a huge revelation that changes the scope of this thing until recently the 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 you know right wing media has tried to downplay the events of January 6th by saying look it was a sort of swelling of violence that happened after the Trump speech it wasn't that violent at all anyway and and you know people were sort of duped and maybe duped by the feds or antifa <laughs> Tucker Carlson still says it's antifa that did January 6th but they painted a picture of a sort of random act of violence that happened um, but now we know that it was planned uh, beforehand and and that the proud boys were you know the architects do you think this means andy that the the state the police uh, senior republicans are prepared to cut the proud boys loose and if so do you, what do you think it spells for the future of the gang all i know is is again that that the the proud boys are known for coming back from this and and really i mean gavin mcginnis you know, Enrique Tarrio's in jail and it's probably going to go to jail for a long time. I mean, there's, you know, there's conspiracy charges in America and then there's a thing called seditious conspiracy, you know, which means that not only did they conspire to commit a crime together, but they did so to overthrow the government. And that's really, really bad. I imagine that seditious charges are, are coming down the pipeline, but their resiliency in the face of their leaders is, is, is demonstrated. And so I don't think that they're going anywhere especially since now it appears that Gavin has sort of taken a saddle again. Um, he's wearing Proud Boys colors again, something he hasn't done since 2018. After that Metropolitan GOP Club uh, event, he sort of pretended to step down uh, to save face. But he's back seemingly in the saddle. The Proud Boys are still on a weekly parade of violence throughout the, the country. In fact, a uh, Vice News uh, investigation found that their events have actually ramped up since January 6th. So certainly that's not going away. And again, as I always say, if the Proud Boys were to change their name tomorrow to somehow try and save face, the playbook that they leave behind, this ability to go from bumbling street gang to a, you know, uh, a legitimate 
in, you know, enforcement arm embraced by an entire political party, the playbook's there. And there's evidence that, you know, other people are taking cues from this. There are, there are groups that are um, trying to solid, run for office. There are Proud Boys running for office. Uh, there, I think there's something like 35 Proud Boys running for political office this year. The, the playbook and in, in in their ability to sort of sanitize themselves and distance themselves from the guys in jail is, is there. I, I really don't see them going anywhere. And again, you have this sort of culture war issue where they're latching on to abortion events and, you know, any kind of uh, political event where there might be leftist demonstrators. They are willing to throw away all the old and jump on something new uh, at the at the drop of a hat. And <laughs> they're doing it right now with... Uh, I don't know if you have you heard of these uh, these these grooming events that they're uh, <laughs> they're latching onto. Well, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, we see the the Proud Boys fulfilling this role as you know the shock troops of the right wing grievance machine. Where is the right wing grievance machine at at the moment? The right has any number of grievances that are sort of synonymous with each other that they pull out of a bag whenever one of them gets a little old. A lot of times, and over the decades, really, it, it, it's often revolved around education. You know, the the, the liberals are teaching our children uh, bad morals and, and to be gay and, um, you know, have a good time uh, in the schools, and we don't want that. And so, uh, you know, the liberals are a sort of existential threat that we must stop or our children are, are going to be, you know, uh, uh, taken down. But they, but, but now they've latched onto this idea of grooming and, and, and pedophilia. This is one that they pull out from time to time as well, but it's all surrounding right now, Disneyland. <laughs> I know, I know, I know there's a lot and I'm sort of backing into this, but let me, let me tell you about the, uh, the, the Disneyland grooming story. So um, Florida has a controversial uh, so-called don't say gay bill, um, which restricts public school instructors from talking to um, young students about, quote, sexual identity and gender orientation, which means uh, uh, that they are banned from talking even about the acceptance of trans individuals, for example. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill in March, and conservatives are now using this as a pivot point where they're saying, okay, if you disagree with the don't say gay bill, then that must mean that you are trying to indoctrinate and groom our children in some way, which of course the bill itself doesn't have anything to say uh, about grooming. It's not about the sexualization of children. It's, it's about, you know, you're not able to talk about gender orientation and, and, you know, gender transition, but, but they've, they've sort of latched onto this as if you are against the don't say gay bill, then you must be uh, a pedophile. You must be a groomer. And Disneyland, Disney World in Florida, has vowed to help repeal this bill because, uh, you know, the public sort of pressured Disneyland to take a stand on this because Disney World is in um, uh, in Florida, right? And so conservatives are now attacking and protesting outside of Disneyland in California and Disney World uh, in Florida, uh, calling Disneyland and Disney uh, a bunch of pedophile groomers. The Proud Boys are, of course latching onto this and all, all of our worst right-wing carnival barkers and, and uh, grifters and racists are jumping onto this and, and positioning journalists and teachers and judges as, as pedophiles just for taking a stand against this ridiculous and horrifying bill that, that they were able to push through. I mean, this is such a step back, but, but anyway, the, the, the Proud Boys are out there. Um, there was a, uh, there was, you know, an event 
just this last weekend in, in Florida, where all sorts of people, QAnon types and, and Proud Boy types and their allies were out there sort of protesting this, just standing outside the fences in, <laughs> at Disney World and calling everybody groomers. The funny and ridiculous part about all of this is that, of course, there are real actual accused pedophiles in the GOP that, of course, none of these right-wing forces ever latch onto and say are bad. One of which is uh, Congressman Matt Gates, who has been accused, uh, uh, you know, of grooming and, you know, assaulting a 17-year-old girl. And so you have actual, real, you know, pedophiles and and uh, in inside, you know, political circles who aren't being latched onto because they're a part of the right. And so it's this ridiculous hypocrisy and you know, while half of the nation is rolling their eyes and saying, look at these assholes, you know, the other half is is uh, is totally on board with it. It sort of struck me that, the you know, this don't say gay bill is trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist. Like the, there are not discussions of gender and sexuality happening in elementary school. It's a, it's a, right. a fictional problem. It's sort of similar to, you know, high level legal concepts like critical race theory are not also being taught in uh, primary schools. When you have these moral panics that are fighting against non-existent problems, how can they be fought back against? Yeah, well, you know, the issue that we face with regularity in this country is that the the it's it's there is a issue of not being able to fight fire with fire because we have a a two-party system and one party, the Democrats, um, are notoriously awful at, at, at facing these threats and, and sort of meeting them, uh, the Republicans at their same level. Um, and the, you know, the, the democratic politicians, instead of being like, you guys have pedophiles on your team, they sort of roll their eyes and try to ignore it and hope it goes away. And what we know is that when you, uh, ignore something until it goes away, it doesn't go away. It festers and grows. And so the, the, the easiest way I see to fighting back at this is having our Congress people educated and able to to fight back with their own rhetoric and get these guys out of office or at least shame them into their hidey holes. Um, but we've been unable to do that. And and beyond that, I mean, as I write the book, you know, the, the most effective the most effective thwarters of of these movements are anti-fascist uh, researchers and activists who are thwarting these people on their own playing field. They're they're going online. They're they're uh, infiltrating the ranks of these groups. Um, they're stopping events before they happen, and they're promoting and showing them at their worst. You know, to the point where January sixth, for example, the reason why they were able to make hundreds and hundreds of arrests is because of the work of anti-fascist researchers identifying and putting up dossiers on all these people. And we see that for all kinds of events. We see, and you know, I write in the book. I would. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have been able to write the book without the work of of these researchers and activists who, for their work, I know that these you know politicians are hanging out with extremists, and I know that their relationships. I see their private messages because they've been hacked, you know. So the the, the people doing the work are the people outside of our institutions. But how can uh, we fight back? I, I think it really goes with being able to to fight that fire with more fire, and we certainly just don't have that in the Democrats here. Just finally, Andy, Portland emerged as a central site for conflict between the Proud Boys and, and locals and anti-fascists. What's the situation there now? Have the Proud Boys conquered the city or has the city pushed them out? 
Uh, I would say neither. So what it's the, the fights in Portland are starting back up again, but the proud boys took a sort of hiatus after January 6th, because during, um, you know, big name events, they try to tell their people, Hey, let's sort of hold off for a few, but the fighting is still happening. Um, there's been a lot of, of gun violence, proud boys shooting into crowds and stuff in Portland and the police. Meanwhile, the, the, the Portland, um, institutions are, which by the way, are totally liberal. And this goes to what I just said about the liberals being unable to meet them um, on their own playing field. They have sort of thrown up their hands and said, if in, in an unprecedented ruling, Portland officials say that if a battle is happening between willing participants, meaning just the people brawling in the streets, they're not going to even get involved. And so it's getting more and more violent. There's now gun violence happening in the streets there, even though guns are not allowed in, in, in the Portland city proper. But what you have there is a sort of microcosm of the wider problem and, and a, a and proof of concept that if you ignore, they will keep going. You know, Enrique Tario and the other Proud Boys leaders are stomping all through Portland and laughing at them. I did a story where we got video showing Enrique Tario literally sitting in front of a group of Proud Boys in Portland and saying, hey, we just wasted $3 million uh, of the city budget on the last one. Let's keep coming back and doing this again until they're totally bankrupt. I mean, this they they admitted that their rallies are not for some, you know, patriotic sort of demonstration reasons. They're not constitutionally protected events. They're there to, to waste money and fight. And so, I mean, calling saying that it, it's fallen to the Proud Boys, it's interesting because they don't, the Proud Boys that go there aren't even from there. They see it as a liberal stronghold that they can keep coming into and, and, and uh, winning victories at. And so the, what Portland represents to me is, is, is the worst of the worst that can happen when you throw up your hands. And, uh, you know, again, the, the anti-fascist forces out there um, and activist forces and local people, regular people are, are out there uh, really fighting the only fight that's happening against these forces, uh, the, the right wing forces. So it's really the worst of the worst there. I don't see it getting any better. Um, and, but I do see it as a shining example of, of, of the worst that can happen if you ignore these things. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio version of the show, but we'll have a few more questions on the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. So if people want to follow Andy on Twitter, he's at Andy B. Campbell, and the book We Are Proud Boys comes out later this year in October. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much. This was an awesome conversation. I appreciate it. Well, Andy, that's the show. Yeah, what a great show. Thanks for coming on, Andy. And we'll be back next week. Catch you later. See you then.
tell me what you find Shut the door Take a giant step for you and all mankind Then don't come back Hey you mob, it's time to get back to the community, so get your proof of vaccination ready. Get started by creating a MyGov account if you don't already have one and linking your Medicare number. Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.